0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: I think in my life, this idea of playing it safe has, um, one, has allowed me to work with many, many people, right? Because everyone, I think that playing it safe is the norm and not the exception. In my life, I think the biggest thing is that I don't want to do plain and safe actions that are going to restrict my work. I don't want to listen to my mind in a way that it's going to narrow what I can or cannot do or how much I can do it or I cannot, right? So I think the way that plain it safe has shaped me is about stepping back and checking once again why this is important. Why do I really want to be doing that? Why um What's behind, you know, being told no, being rejected, right? How how do I want to face this? So I think it's really about unpacking the reasons, my drivers, when I'm trying to play it safe and checking if it helps me to be a person I want to be or not.
0: It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Super excited to be chatting with you.
0: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So um, I found out about your work, one, because you've been a longtime listener, but two, also because you wrote in and I was extremely intrigued by uh, what you're up to, um, because I think it's highly relevant given what's going on in the world today. It's stuff that I think you know, I needed myself. Um, but before we get into all of that, particularly given the sound of your voice, um, I want to start by asking you, where in the world did you grow up and what impact has that ended up having on the choices that you've made throughout your
3: life and your career?
1: Wow, I love that question. Um, I was born in South America, in Bolivia, and I was born in the capital of Bolivia. It's a small city called Sucre. And I came to the States in 2001. That's a long time ago, right? Um, So I have been like the last 20 years living in the Bay Area. And I think when, when I think about in which ways growing up in Bolivia has shaped me, I think there are so many, so many layers to that, res- to that question. One of them, I think, is that I, I was born in the middle of a dictatorship in my country. My mm-hmm. country was under a dictatorship between 1970 to 1978. And I was still a kid. I was, you know, four or five years old. But at that time, it was very clear, like on Sundays and Wednesdays, we have to pick up food for everyone in the neighborhood. So everyone was getting together and distributing, right? All types of food supplies, because that's what was going on in the country. And I think that memory has shaped me a lot on the sense that the us is more important than the I. That Mm. together is more important than what I want for myself and by myself, right? And so I think that sense of community, it has been very strong in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, when I came to the States, I still, you know, I'm definitely shaped by that. It just happens also that with that way of thinking more about us versus I, I was very shy with my work. I was scared about saying, well, but I think I can do this or that, right? So I had to overcome my own learning history and find a balance between realizing that the us is better than the I, but mm-hmm. also that at times you do have to go into the Ith mode and say, yes, I can do this. And I know that. Right. Um, So I think that has been one of the biggest, um, the biggest influences I had had coming from Bolivia and then coming to the States as an adult.
0: So, you know, I wonder in the culture in Bolivia, you know, when parents are raising their children, like one, when they're being educated, what are the sort of predominant narratives about you know your education and the role that it plays later in your life in terms of you know hey go do this as a career are they like indian parents where it's like hey go become a doctor engineer or or is it different like what what do you you know what is that like
1: that's that's another beautiful question i love it um so i am coming from a working class family in which usually the men have been doctors and the women were teachers Mm. um at that time, I think when I was a teenager, maybe, I realized how much there was some gender difference in terms of a career choice, what people could do. And very early at that time I did, you know, I was confused about that to a certain degree, but there was one constant message that my family always say. They say, Patricia, you don't have your looks, you don't have your heels, you have your education. So you better do everything you can with education, right? Um, so I grew up with this 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 idea that I have to protect my brain, right? I just have to just go to school uh, and succeed and do things right. Yeah. Um, when I finished high school, I did wanted to be a psychologist, and uh, my family was very concerned because they say, "Well, we don't know if that's going to be successful. You are a woman; you have to think about security, right?" Uh, but they were also clear that the only thing that will allow me to have the life I want to have is education, right? So they ended up saying, "Okay, fine." They ended up supporting the idea. But I think this notion that you can only have stability in life through education it was super key. Um, the the notion that guys go to become doctors and women become teachers. Soften up over the years, right, but certainly, I think traditionally it was like that. It just with my generation start shifting a little bit,
0: yeah, so I think one of the things that caught my attention was that you mentioned you come from a working class family and the funny thing is here in the United States, nobody who's working class would say that their parents are doctors, like doctors are not considered a working class occupation here. like why is that the case in a place like Bolivia
1: yeah it's a little bit different in the sense that Bolivia, yeah, certainly I probably hear that. Um, Certainly Bolivia, um, it's maybe, it's a uh, yeah, it's a, I think in the 90s Bolivia was one of the poorest countries, right? So the Mm -hmm. working class in South America it's different than the working class in the States. Um, On the sense that the access to resources, the access to technology for example, it's certainly different, right? Um, so I think that in Bolivia, traditionally, most men have been doctors or lawyers and women were teachers. And when we think about working class, I, I think that the access to resources is quite different than in the States, quite, yeah. quite different, right? Um, not, not necessarily bad, but just quite different. It's, it's a very different thing to be living in a first work country versus in a third work country, even where yeah. you're in the same frame of a working class.
0: Well, yeah, no, I mean, it, it reminds me of the, this thing that Trevor Noah said when people were going insane, buying toilet paper everywhere. He said, clearly, these people have never been to a third country. It was like, turn on the shower.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. I think there's so many, uh, so many um, differences, right? Culturally speaking, the lifestyles, and really what you're pinpointing, what does it mean to be working class in South America versus what mm-hmm. does it mean to be working class in the States, right?
3: Yeah.
0: Um, I think you mentioned you're a mother, right?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So, what I this is something I always wonder about immigrant parents. Like, you grew up in Bolivia, you came to the United States. What aspects of culture have you retained and and continued to instill uh, in in raising your son or daughter? Um, as well as, like, what parts have you you know integrated from you know American culture? Like, how do you how do you have the balance between the two?
1: That's a, that's a very yeah. I love that you ask this very, I think, thoughtful questions. Um. You make me pause. I love that. Um, <laughs> I think the biggest thing for me has been really um, making sure the people we love, they know that we love them. My family has grown up with that. We're very affectionate people in so many ways. Right? Physically, um, we're caring with each other. And I think at times it's easy to forget that because of the busyness of life, because we have the stuff to do, right? Yeah. So think my mom and my grandmother, there was they always say, make sure that the people that you love, they know you love them.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that is super important in a time in which we are living under extreme degrees of distress at a time in which we have so much technology that we can be consumed by that, that we may forget that what really matters at the end is the people that is with us next to us. Mm-hmm. And that it's never enough to show how much we care for them, right? Um, so I think for me, that has been a constant then and it continues to be a constant now. It's something I'm always thinking, um, how can I show kindness and how can I show caring to this person that I cared, right? Yeah. Um, which I think it's very, it has, it's really, for me, it's coming from my upbringing and how I grew up with my family. So that will be one of those ways that I have kept with me.
0: Hmm. So you know it's it's funny when we talk about how how you know love is expressed and letting people know that you love them. Like I, I think about that that's such a it's an interesting contrast from Indian parents who, uh you know, we're, we're, I was telling you know my cousin and I were you know we're here in Boulder we're talking to my dad and he was in India and he was like you know he looks at us he's like yeah I got to go eat breakfast I'll talk to you guys later and we're like clearly he doesn't give a shit about talking to us right now uh, you know and we, we joke it's like oh if my sister had called that would have been an hour phone call but. But the funny thing is that they they don't necessarily express love in ways that we wanted to. And this is something I think I had to come to terms with that, you know, just isn't expressed in the way that I want it to be expressed. According to my quote unquote love languages, which it turns out are words of affirmation and physical affection, two things that Indian parents suck at, like pretty unanimously. Um, But then, you know, he'll do random things like, hey, it's like I sent you a pack of pajamas from Costco or we sent you two air filters. It's like, why? Is because they're on sale, and to me, I was like, okay, cool. That is very clearly. And my cousin made a good point. He said, "Here's the thing you you have to realize about Indian parents. He's like, they'll never, you know, be affectionate with you. Potentially, they may not express, you know, physical affection or even verbal affirmation. But the one thing you know is, no matter how old you are." Or no matter how bad the situation is, that door will always be open for you.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think think one of the challenges that we face in relationships, all types of relationships, is how we can learn to accept um, the love that comes from the other person that may not be our own way, may not Mm -hmm. be our preference, right? And by nature, we may be confused, we may reject sometimes, or we try to impose like, no, but I want this, right? Right. But I think relationships many times pushes to just drop the rope and open up to what is in front of us and really accept people as they come with what they have, which is not easy to do, certainly not. Yeah. Uh, I think it's key for relationships to keep growing, right? To just yes, accept that you're that. That's how he cares by mm. buying extra things, right? right? May be ideal, may not be what you want, and yet that's the way that people show
3: up, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I remember for a while, I used to be kind of upset that my dad hadn't read my books. And I was like, wait a minute, I wouldn't. And my dad, my dad is a weird person who is a college professor who genu- genuinely doesn't read books for leisure, which is the strangest thing to me. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, okay, I'm asking a guy who doesn't read books to read a book. And then I realized, I was like, wait a minute, I would have never even been able to write these books if he hadn't been willing to let me stay at home for like seven years.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's so funny you mentioned that. I remember I used to be cranky with my family exactly about that. Exactly about the same thing, because, um, you know, it takes a lot of, I think, time and effort, and it's very anxiety-provoking to be writing and putting a book out there. Mm -hmm. And I think at the most, I got questions like, okay, how's the book going? How many chapters did you write? I never got a question about what was the book about, right? Yeah. Um, But when I, you know, when I was in Bolivia, they were happy to take pictures with me and celebrate and have dinner and I used to be cranky. How come you don't ask me what I'm <laughs> about? How to do this, right? Uh, but then I think, with time, because it wasn't easy, there was a part of me that felt unseen, right? Mm-hmm. It's my work, it's how I'm thinking. How come you're not curious about that? Uh, and I think my old behaviors were maybe trying to impose that view that they should ask me, right? It's one way they could do it. But I have to learn that they are doing the best they can in their own way. And it's valid for what it is, right? Does it still, do I still get cranky by that? Sure. Sometimes from time to time. I'm a human being. Not a perfect being, right? Um, But my degree of tolerance, also learning that this is how they love me. This Uh is how they can see me right now. Has go up a little bit.
0: Well, you know, I love that idea of people doing the best they can with what they have. um, Because, yeah, like... I don't think, you know, you look at many parents, they're not, like, well-versed in, like, you know, kind of things that you're an expert in or, um, you know, read endless amounts of self-help books. And this is something I always ask people who are in your field. Are you immune to the bullshit that, like, every other parent deals with, like, you know, as a psychologist, as somebody who is well-versed in how to deal with, you know, with problems? You help people deal with problems that, you know, um, like, they can't solve themselves. But when these problems show up in your own life, are you immune to, like, the ways that other people react to them or do you still have the same sort of you know things that we all deal with
1: that's a, that's a beautiful question um so hashtag therapists are humans right <laughs> <laughs> uh, i think um you know when i think about a pandemic for example right in four days i have to move my practice from being face to face to be a virtual practice i didn't have you know we just have to troubleshoot as quick as possible and and I did it. I needed, I did what needed to be done. But the next week, I was having micro-emotional roller coasters, right? I was crying, I was sad, I was angry, I was frustrated. So I think even when you can have all the most sophisticated skills, being human also means messing up sometimes and means not doing the things as effectively as we want all the time, right? Um So I think opening up to just be gentle and caring with ourselves is also important. But while I have a large repertoire of skills and I coach my clients and I use that client in my day-to-day life, certainly, um, Mm -hmm. I think so. also at times it's just super hard. And I do the best I can and sometimes may not be so effective, but that's the best I can do in that moment. Mm. So I won't think I'm immune.
0: <laughs> well, I think that makes a perfect segue to talking uh, specifically about your work. Uh, you know, the thing that you mentioned when you wrote in, and there are two areas that I want to cover, you know, based on your work, you wrote in about this idea of playing it safe. And um, I think that where I want to start with that is that you chose to leave your home country um, to come to the United States as an immigrant. And I wonder how that shaped your perspective on this whole idea of playing it safe. That's,
1: that's a great question. I the longest story is that I grew up in a family with, I think when I look, especially women in my family were shaped by fear, right? I have many memories in which they wanted to do X and they were scared. They were scared about the outcome. They were scared about how people may perceive them. They were scared about making mistakes. And to me, so my, my relationship with fear started by that, Right while my family was extremely encouraging about doing many things, there were still this sense of, you know, safety, right? Like I said, working class family, you work hard. You don't learn to work smart. You learn to work hard, right? I have to learn to work smart later on, right? Yeah. The frame is that, you know, that you need to shoot for what is solid and stable. That means having a job from nine to five, right? Um. So I think... My early experiences come from that, those encounters with fear, how I can relate to my fears. Um, and then later on, I had you know, I, I had many fears fears about buying the wrong coffee machine, fears about, <laughs> right? I spent three months one time searching for a coffee machine uh, so I can make the best decision possible, um, fears about choosing the wrong partner, fears about saying the wrong thing in an interview fears about not having proper English. So I think it's human to experience fear. And when we experience fear, um, our brain goes into this threat mode and we are going to play it safe sometimes. Um, So that means that either we're going to avoid completely a situation or Mm -hmm. we're going to approach with safety crutches. So. I think my early experience, going back to your question, is from that time when I was born. I saw clearly how fear can shape people's behaviors, and it can be very narrowing. I saw incredible people in my family, right? I think extraordinary people shaped by fear, and what fear does many times restrict your work, right? Construct mm-hmm. What you can do. Yeah. Uh, so I think that, that, and then coming to the states, I had I developed a collection of fears, right? Hundreds of them. So I think I have to learn to develop a new relationship with my own anxieties, my own fears. And that's how Plain is Safe was born, basically.
0: Yeah. Uh, I'm curious, Like in your own experience as an immigrant, what did you find to be shocking? Like, What was your culture shock experience of being in the United States? And what were the things you found the most difficult and challenging about being here?
1: Hugs. <laughs> Hugs. That's a very clear question to me. <laughs> Because I'm coming from a place in which we just hug, we just hug and we kiss, period, mm-hmm. right? You meet someone you hug and you kiss. So when I came, I was at, because the social signaling is different across cultures, across yeah. cultural groups, that I remember just, okay, do I hug this person? No. Do I become No. Do I kiss this person? Is that okay? Am I being rude? Right? My mind was going on and on, trying to play it safe, actually, right? <laughs> <laughs> Myself. Yeah. But that was one of the most cultural shocks. Um I I think now it's less, right? Because I'm like, whatever, I just hack people. Um but I know at the beginning that was actually quite hard for me because mm-hmm. it's the first encounter you have with someone and we just yeah. have peace, right? So I had to pause and really, really I think overthink how I was gonna respond. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think that when we would like, like when we came back from Brazil, I think all of our friends were like, this sucks. Nobody kisses you here. And nobody hugs you here. It's like, let's just go back.
1: That's right. That's right. That's right. I think, that, was, not to be honest, that was one of the, I think, biggest cultural shocks that I had. I still remember that. Um, oh, and then the other cultural shock, um, although this is more like the immigrant experience, right? When I was in Bolivia, I had to study English at a college level, right? You grab the book, you know the grammar, you read this, you read that, right? You're like, hmm, okay, I can do this. And then you come to the country. And then what happens? People are speaking English not from a book. They're like, oh my gosh, what is this? So all the slangs, all the idiomatic expressions, right? Mm-hmm. That was also very interesting because they're very cultural based, right? You cannot take them literally. Yeah. Um, so I think that that was also interesting to me to realize the gap between what educational institutions are teaching and that mm-hmm. what are teaching and what happens in life, right? Yeah. And there's such a contrast with that. So that was shocking too. Yeah.
0: So let's talk a bit more about this idea of playing it safe. You know, I, I um, just started reading this book called Bright how the, the, you know, relentless promotion of, you know, positive thinking is undermining America, which is a interesting take. And I think that, you know, there's a sort of balancing act between, you know, playing it safe and delusional optimism. You know, I see people make decisions that I'm like, that's a terrible decision. Like, you know, it's kind of like, oh, I'm going to go do this insane thing. And, you know, I have no guarantee that it's like, I have no sort of thing to like make sure that if I fall, I'm not going to fall to my death. You know, it's like, oh, I've never been skiing before. And I think I'm going to start in a double black diamond. It's like, no, you're going to definitely hurt yourself if you do that. So how do you find the, the balance between, you know, sort of, playing it safe and delusional optimism? Because I think that, you know, you can go from one extreme to the other and the other has really catastrophic consequences.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, um, yeah, you know, you're raising a very important question, right? One of the things that has happened, I think we have hundreds of books in pop psychology Mm -hmm. that it's all about being happy and it's mind over mood, right? That the way that you think will shape all parts of things um, and, I, and I think the challenge with that is there is this toxic optimism on the sense that we're supposed to be always finding that silver lining in all types of things and always having a positive thought, but our mind is not designed by that, right? If you think about uh, neuropsychology, one of the things that we know is that the brain is a content generator and a pattern-making machine, and it's coming up with all types of content, blah, 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 chap, 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 about all types of things, Right. And that content also sometimes is yucky thoughts, thoughts that we don't like, thoughts about being a failure, thoughts about not being good enough, right? Um, So I think it's very, um, it's dangerous, as you're saying, when people go into this delusional optimist just because, you know, they should do it, right? Or because there's the mind telling them that. Um, The way that I think about playing with safe behaviors is that when we get afraid, Humans were not wired to experience discomfort. We don't like to be in pain, whether that's physical or emotional pain. So we do everything we can to run away, right? We avoid. Um, one example, when I am driving on the freeway and I see something that may look like a dead animal, I don't look too much. I don't close my eyes because I don't want to have a car accident, but mm. I don't look in what to, what may seem a dead animal. And that's on a form of pain itself because I'm avoiding, right? Yeah. The challenge is that no one teaches us when is effective to play it safe and when it's not, or how often we do it, or when we do it. Right? Um, Every human being, we are going to play it safe. Right? We we try to not make a fool of ourselves. If we are going on a date, we are trying to create a good impression with a person. Right? Um, Or you are trying to make the best decision when you're buying a coffee machine. Right? So I think it's natural. But we have to learn to distinguish when it's effective, when it mm-hmm. help us to be the person we want to be, when it's consistent with our values, and when it's taking us far away. Mm-hmm. So these ideas of just um, just going along with these thoughts of our mind of a mood, right, can be actually quite toxic and not very helpful for people, as you're saying, that delusional optimism.
0: So I wonder, you know, what role you think that, um, you know, sort of the, the culture of pop psychology, social media, I mean, hell, even shows like mine have, you know, played in perpetuating this narrative of, you know, I'm amazing. And I, and I've shared this story before, like I had a listener who wrote in once and said, you know, I'm really sorry, but I can't keep listening to these. These people all seem amazing and they make me feel like shit about my own life. And I was like, I can relate. I was like, they're all more amazing than I am. So, you know, it's, yeah. And so I think about that a lot, uh, particularly with technology, social media, you know, where everybody's life looks more epic than yours does at every moment, you know. Um, and so I wonder, you know, as a psychologist, like, what role do you think that this has played in, in you know, perpetuating this delusional optimism problem?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think the problem has been a historical problem, at least in the States in the 90s, right? The culture of pop psychology has grown up, right? The amount of books that self-help books that people are reading that were not too much based on behavioral science was, mm-hmm. it's, it's it's really, really a high number, right? The challenge that I see is that, as psychologists um we do have the science we know I think what's effective for people to have a fulfilling life, and I'm a behavioral person right It's all about my behavioral science into day to day life. The biggest challenge I think is that we haven't written enough for the lay audience yeah, I think we have been writing books maybe for ourselves to a certain point, right, so I think. One of the things I'm passionate about making behavioral science alive and fun in a way that any person can relate to it. Because before that, we have hundreds of books about how to be happy, right? Or get rid of fear and just be happy. Or if you don't have the thought, be happy. So I think it's coming historical from the 90s, but I can see a shift, right? I can see a shift. We just have to do a better job delivering the message yeah. about behavioral science in a more engaging way, right? Which mm-hmm. actually, I think you show you do that. I think you are having interviewing very interesting people that has some science behind what they have been doing. They have yeah. a personal experience, but they also have science and they're talking about it in a jargon-free way, which is super key right now.
0: Well, I mean, that, that's literally probably my other filter is like, what am I curious about? And does this person have actual research to back up what they're talking about? Otherwise, I'm like, they might be full of shit. Um, but the the thing that also comes with that, right, is that what in a ways and I, I remember writing about this is we've created this culture where you have these you know, coaches and, and people who cause people to basically you know, avoid like overlook that line between risk and recklessness where it's like, Oh, invest in my $10,000 coaching program. Like I, I remember, you know, I went to Stephen Kotler's, um, uh, zero to danger seminar where he was talking about flow. And he said, you know, if you look at what most of these self-improvement, you know, gurus do, and he named one in particular who I won't name by name, but he said, what those guys are doing is they're shutting off your prefrontal cortex all day long, to the point where you are not going to make rational decisions by the time they're done with you. And he said, you should never go shopping while you're in flow because you'll buy anything. And he said, and he was like, that's where the sort of unethical line is with what we do with this is because, and I know this from having done an event. I remember telling people at the end of our event, you guys probably feel like you have this incredible high right now, right? And they're like, yes. I'm like, I'm going to tell you right now, that's going to go away the moment you get home. Um, I was like, because what we've done is create an environment to produce that by design Um, but you're going to go back to your normal environment so you know there's an ethical line i think that we don't really take into consideration because it's like oh your job as the you know motivational guru is to just get people to buy whatever it is you're
1: selling yeah yeah you know one of the things i had many clients have attended to these um these motivational talks or seminars for weeks right and i have always asked do we have any research showing that maintenance of the gains of those those experiences? And I haven't seen that, right? Seeing um. what we have is many times we all feel lost, confused, frustrated, and we want something different in our life. We are wired to thrive in life, right? And when we don't know, we find different resources. But I think there are resources that are science-based, and there are resources that are more emotion-based, mm-hmm. um, and I think that is a huge difference. On my side, I can humbly say, for what I have searched, I haven't seen any data showing the maintenance again of those outcomes when people have these very big experiences in one of those in one of those seminars, right? Yeah. Cool.
0: Um, <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. The funny thing is maybe you you can finally, I mean, you've probably heard me ask this question before because I've asked it probably a dozen times to people in your position. So I I think this applies to people who read books, people who listen to podcasts and people who go to self-help seminars, right? You have these three groups. Um, One is the people who basically are just addicted to sort of this endless cycle of inspiration. They're the second group who this thing could be a catalyst for to make some sort of change. And then there's a third group who basically they just do this thing because they're already at this sort of level of achievement where it's like, oh, okay, cool. Like they're, they're you know gains, they actually maintain the gains long, like they don't need the gains is what I'm saying. But then there's that second group that maintains the gains. And yet I think the entire personal development industry is actually built off of the first group. Because um, you, know, you don't generate billions of dollars if people are getting the outcomes they want. Like I remember Werner Earhart, um, you know, Dan Kennedy tells a story in one of his seminars of meeting Werner Earhart from the Landmark Forum and he said, just sum up the whole S thing to me in one sentence. This is when they used to call it Est. And he said, you know, basically he said, we sell independence, but we breed dependence. And you think about that and it's like, wow. But yet their business model literally depends on that mindset. And I think it does for so many of these people, because if you get to the point where, you know, like I remember I told our audience mastermind group, right? it's like, my goal is to get you to the point where you don't need me. I don't want to do this every Thursday with you guys. I love you guys. I'd love to hang out with you in person and have drinks. I don't want to be teaching you for the rest of my life. Which I think is a very somebody's like, well, that's not a great business model, but the the thing is that that's predominant in you know sort of this culture. Like, how do you how do you deal with that? Like, and how do we how do people maintain the gains? I guess is really where I'm going with it.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful question, and, and I love you know the background. I love the question and thinking about three different groups, right, that may benefit from these or benefit from these these approaches. And um, I think. Again, I'm just a boring behavioral therapist, right? I think um, the biggest thing for me is to coach people with the skills that they can use in their own, right? What does it mean is that we want to always create opportunities for people to generalize what they are learning, right? The goal is not for everyone to be coming to see a therapist or a coach all their life. The goal is to empower people so they can be in their own, right? Right. Uh, but I think if you're holding that frame when you're working with people at all the times, that's going to translate by itself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I have seen that. I think, I think that is why, again, behavioral science makes a huge difference, right? There is hundreds of amazing conversations we can have with people, and that's more like talk therapy or talk coaching. But if they don't translate them into action, they're like beautiful words taken by the wind. Or people can be actually talking for years and still have analysis paralysis, right? That is still living in their head. Mm-hmm. So I think the way that I see is the framework we're doing. It's really helping people to be the drivers of where they want to go in life, yeah. helping to figure out what matters, the person they want to be, how they want to shape the relationships, and unpack with them all these blocks, whether it's a thinking block, a feeling block, and then you coach them how to use the skills you practice that and they can do so much more in their life right so mm-hmm. i think if you are holding the frame of making things accessible and a skill level the maintenance of any outcomes we have are usually going to be long-lasting right
3: yeah
4: ready to pop the question
0: Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. So let's go deeper into this idea of playing it safe. So one thing that I I wrote a post on Medium, uh, I think about two, three weeks ago about what I thought was this essential skill that we should have learned in childhood, but, you know, that determines everything in adulthood. And that was the ability to take risks because you don't get anything in your life without taking a risk. Like it's a risk to apply to college. It's a risk to ask a girl out on a date. It's a risk for somebody like you to pitch me as a guest. Like, and yet. The, instead of teaching us how to increase our capacity for that, what happens is as we go through life, it actually diminishes bit by bit um, from each experience that you have. So, how do you find, while, while knowing that is happening, how do you maintain a balance between risk and
1: recklessness? Wow, that, that, I love your questions, my God. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> I just absolutely love them. I think, you see, and, and I'm sorry, I'm maybe very Latino in this way, I have to give background, right? Uh, The way that I think, sometimes um, there is a context in which we have to be holding our relationship with thinking and with fear, right? Um, I think we can teach people what to do or how to do X, Y, and Z, but I'm a little bit more invested in helping people to develop a new relationship with thinking and with fears and with anxieties. And the reason is because wherever we go, this thought about making the wrong decision um or pushing yourself too much it's always going to be there right it's about maybe a stepping back and watching actually where you want to go and if that action is consistent with who you want to be um when i think about risk-based decisions it's a, it's human that we're going to be scanning the degrees of risk right mm-hmm. am i putting the money in the right bucket right am i choosing the wrong partner right am i moving to the wrong right city so it is human to try to minimize, you know, the damage that we could have. Yeah. The challenge is that I think many times humans, we don't like to not know it, right? Like we are we are fused and cooked with the thought of like I need to know for sure or I need to know right now.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: so I think that amplifies more our distress many times. If I take that thought as an absolute, I may go into reassuring, uh, I may... You know, spend hours searching in Google, what's the best way to do X-wing. I may ask a lot of people, or I may not take action, right? So I avoid. Um, What I have found is that when people have a little bit of what you are describing, these states of flow, those emotions are usually like very, very loud. They are like heavy metals, right? Mm -hmm. They just push for action, they are loud. But if we step back a little bit from that emotional noise, there is usually what we call maybe more intuition. It's like this soft voice. It's quiet. It's not demanding. It's not loud enough. But it will tell you, you know, what's helpful to you to do, right? So I think to make the decision, right, how do I handle, you know, face this risk versus doing things relentlessly, I will invite people to check. Are you listening to heavy metal trash in front of you and just going along? or Are you tapping into this soft voice? That tells you know what's important to you, but it's not demanding and it's not pushing. And make a decision from that place. Yeah.
0: So this this raises another thing uh, for me about the difference sort of between what are perceived risks uh, and real ones, like perceived downsides and real ones. And I'll give you my example. So, like, I was absolutely terrified to ever go ask a girl out on a date in college. I, I can't even remember going on a date in college. Which is crazy to think about now, but um, but then you know the other and and the, the only downside of that is somebody says no, but we make that no mean so much in our heads. Now, the other flip side of that is that real risk is like let's say you bet ten thousand dollars on one hand at a blackjack table. That's far stupider and the f- consequences are far more catastrophic. Um, so how do we how do we one you know deal with the fact that certain risks are much more perceived and emotional than they are real the way you are at the blackjack table like, you know, because yeah, okay. The worst that somebody is going to say is no, but the thing is that that no prevents you from doing so many other things. It was kind of like you. I like had I know in your background, like I looked at your background, it was like a no brainer that I said yes. I couldn't believe you would waited long to email me. I was like, oh yeah, I definitely want to talk to you. Um, so that's the thing, right? It's it's. I mean, you yourself have dealt with it, as we know, just from the fact that you're here. Of
1: course, of course, right? Here's something I think. Um. When I think about what brain, because I think that it's a content generator and a pattern-making machine, it's like also an old system that is always trying to protect us, right? And every time I may try to do something that is important to me or something I care about, my brain naturally is going to tell me, watch out, Patricia, watch out. What did this person say no? What if things go wrong, right? Um, I think the skill here is to Learn to distinguish, if I go along with a thought, does my life get better and richer, or does my life shrink, right? Mm. If you want to be in a meaningful relationship, you won't be in a meaningful relationship by listening to your mind, but by approaching the girl, right? By actually okay. going to a coffee shop or just enjoying uh, joining one of these online dating uh, platforms, right? So I think... Learning to take our mind as a content generator and not as something that we always have to do what the mind tells us to do. It's super key here to approach what is important to us. Mm -hmm. Um, This idea that I I, I see what you're saying that many people may just um, go into just putting this huge bed into something that they don't know much. But approaching what we're afraid of, it's not about power into things and just getting down, just jumping off the cliff all the way, right? I think it's more about checking, why do I want to face this? Why does it matter to me? And how can I do it in a way that still gets me out you know, of my comfort zone? I still helps me to be the person I want to be. But I'm not going into these, I think, extreme decisions, right? Uh, which I think it's hard to do. I have seen that many times that people will just go these colossal jumps, right? Um, but I think checking what matters, how it matters, why we want to do it, it some, sometimes can bring this gentle approach to, uh, to facing any risky situation. Yeah.
0: So how has uh, your knowledge of this whole idea of playing it safe and taking risks uh, impacted you as a parent?
1: Uh, well, I am not a parent.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. I, I missed that.
1: No worries. No worries. I have a leave that helps. <laughs> oh,
0: okay. Yes, that does. <laughs> uh,
1: well, I think, um, I think in my life, this idea of playing it safe has... One, um, has allowed me to work with many, many people, right? Because everyone... I think that playing it safe is the norm and not the exception. In my life, I think the biggest thing is that I don't want to do plain and safe actions that are going to restrict my work. I don't want to listen to my mind in a way that it's going to narrow what I can or cannot do or how much I can do it or I cannot, right? So I think the way that plain it safe has shaped me is about stepping back and checking once again why this is important. Why do I really want to be doing that? Why um, What's behind, you know, being told no, being rejected, right? How, how do I want to face this? So I think it's really about unpacking the reasons, my drivers, when I'm trying to play it safe and checking if it helps me to be a person I want to be or not, um, which actually in my humble opinion, I think it's really, really hard again, because we don't like to experience fear yeah. and we've been told that we have to get rid of fear. So that's, or we have been told that we have to respond to thinking with more thinking. And Mm -hmm. that's we play it safe. Either we live in our head or we avoid, right? Uh, But I think if we learn to check when it's helpful to play it safe and when it's not, then we can choose how to respond to that particular situation, to that particular person. Mm -hmm. So behaviorally speaking, we call that discrimination, right? Or context shifting. So I think it also helps us to be more flexible. But I think it's super key to have, you know, rich lives. Just step back and watch, right? Is it helpful or not? Does it work or not? Towards the person I want to be.
0: Mm -hmm. So I guess, you know, um, one thing I wonder, you know, if kids naturally, particularly when it comes to creativity, don't play it safe. Like if you ask a kid to draw you a picture, it's like, oh, cool. You know, I remember going to a friend's house and her kids were, you know, three daughters. You know, first they drew all these crazy pictures and then, you know, they made a uh, just a giant amount of noise in the living room and she was like, Oh, they're putting on a show for you. She's like, I was like, You guys do this every night? I was like, holy shit. Um, uh, yeah. But but the thing that I, I wonder is what you would say to parents who are listening to, you know, make sure their kids don't lose that sort of creative risk-taking capacity that they, you know, because that's one thing, you know, I had a, a college student who emailed me, you know, just I think Sunday saying, Hey, how do you find the courage to pursue your ideas? And I was thinking to myself, well, I don't have the courage to pursue my ideas. I just do them because um, I think that there's this delusion that people who pursue their ideas have sort of unquestionable courage. And that is far from the truth. Um, So yeah, I guess, you know, in a kid who is, you know, probably inevitably going to lose that through the conditioning we get from school where we're taught that there's something wrong with the wrong answers, how would, what would you say to parents to, you know, ensure that they don't lose that or at least retain some of it?
1: Yeah, yeah. I've seen I think it depends on the parents' values, right? The, the one thing I talk with my clients and certainly I practice these, and that's for parents or for all of us, is to practice in curiosity workouts, right? Or uncertainty workouts on the sense that in the long term, in order to, I think, have a fulfilling life, life requires us to approach and to experience and to be curious about the world. We cannot do that. If I get trapped on the thoughts of, um, I need to do things right, I'm too scared, I cannot do that. So I think teaching kids that they can have all types of noise and still have a bias towards action is super key. One way to do that is by really doing this mini exercise of curiosity or uncertainty, right? Like you can flip a coin, for example, and say, okay, um, if it fails on this side, we will go to that restaurant or to this other restaurant, Or we will do this project, right? But it's really about approaching uncertainty and building that as a thing and as an exercise, right? Uh, Which many times I do, right? I like to take off to the street and say, okay, where where do I go? To the left, to the right, and just approaching things without a rehearsed plan, even though the mind may tell us all types of things. That will be one way in which we can continue to cultivate these curious behaviors. Which again, I think. Life requires us to be flexible and to constantly be adjusting, right? We move cities, we move relationships, right? So, I think if we get too stuck into our mind, tell us we don't develop behavioral flexibility. Mm-hmm. And without that, it's a really hard way of living life if we cannot shift you know, from situation to situation. But to shift from situation to situation, it's super important to to be curious and see what comes with that, right? Mm -hmm. And which is a skill to develop.
0: Well, I think that makes a perfect segue to the other part of your work that uh, I wanted to spend some time talking about. You know, we live in sort of this productivity obsessed culture. I know because I feel some of it with my own work. Like I've written books about this. I write articles about this, you know, I read books about this, and you're in Silicon Valley of all places. Um that was one of the things that struck me from your website, uh, is you know you're basically getting people off of this sort of you know, high achievers who are addicted to accomplishment. Um, and I, I realized at a certain point, I think that none of my accomplishments were ever going to lead to just everlasting happiness. and uh, well, we'll get to that in a second. but, um where do we like one how did we get here first of all that you think that's more more important to provide the context of how do we end up in this situation where um you know we're built this culture of overachievers kids whose lives are overscheduled in schools it's like we're breeding you know future you know like elon musk's instead of raising kids now
1: (laughs) yes you know um i've seen um I, I, well, I didn't grow up in this country, right? I came to this country as an adult, right? And certainly I can tell you that where I'm coming from, the driver is not to be excellent. The driver is to to just connect with others in many, many levels, right? So I think for me, when I came to the States, um, I didn't um, know the degree of competition that people may have, right? Even going to graduate school, everyone is super brilliant. Everyone needs to just tell you how brilliant they are sometimes, right? Uh, But I think there's you're right that there is a whole culture that has developed around excellent and only doing things that you are good at and do things right and perfect, right? Um, For what I see, it seems that has come also with this, um, this culture of always emphasizing productivity in organizations, right? It's all about automatization and being productive which of course is going to help us in our day-to-day life, in our day-to-day operations, right? Um, However, I think the skill that we have been missing is teaching people when that's effective and when it's not. When I think about holding onto perfect standards, um, I think that there is nothing wrong with that. In fact, doing things right and perfect feels good many times. We get a kick from doing it. Do you relate to that?
0: Of course, yeah.
1: Right? So it feels good. The challenge is that It also gets reinforced by others, right? Mm -hmm. But if we apply that metric to every single thing we do, as it has been prescribed by culture right now, that's very painful. So Mm -hmm. I like to talk so much more about harnessing the power of having high standards, harnessing the power of doing things right and perfect in certain contexts, and learning to do good enough in certain other contexts, right? For some tasks. Um, but I think this dilemma in a time in which everyone is shooting for excellence and perfection and gets reinforced more than telling people, don't do that, because I know my clients won't listen to that. They will tell right. ah, you know, it actually works if I'm doing this right. But teaching my clients and teaching myself and teaching others to let's distinguish when, when it's helpful to you and when it's not, it's a very different message, right? Yeah. Um, we cannot undermine that uh, certainly there are processes that can be automatized and optimized. And it's a beautiful thing, but not everything can be done like that. Creativity, one of those things. How much can we optimize creativity, right?
0: Mm. So how, how do you people figure out when it's beneficial to them and when it's not? You know, like somebody listening to this, how would they figure that out?
1: I think the biggest thing is um, when we think about values. Um, I practice from this approach that's called acceptance and commitment therapy act. Um, I don't know how much you have heard about it, but ACT is bringing to life contemporary behavioral principles integrated with mindfulness. Um, if I have to summarize in a nutshell what ACT is, it's all about inviting you to figure out what matters to you, your personal values, it invites you to take action for those values, and it also invites you to take with you all the yucky stuff that comes when you're doing what matters. Um so how to teach people when it's effective, when it's not, it's about really looking to the values, to the personal values, them to yourself questions about who do I want to be in this relationship? Who do I want to be um, in, in, in my career? How do I want to be as a partner? How do I want to be as a father, right? And um, there are things that we're going to do in life that are going to help us to be that person. They are going to help us with that legacy. There are things that we do that actually take us far away, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so when thinking about having high standards or the perfect behavior, sometimes that's going to be helpful because I care about the project. I want to do it right because I care about that project. Other times, if I am cooking at home and I'm chopping the carrots, right, and some of them are more perfect than others, <laughs> but <then I'm laughs> may not be so healthy, right? Mm
3: -hmm. So
1: I think, but the way to distinguish that is not so much by the outcome, what I want, but it's about checking what's important to me, what's driving this desire to do things right and perfect, what's the value there, right? Um, And within that, we're always thinking about values as ongoing actions, like being caring, being Mm -hmm. affectionate, right? Because we're always working towards that, to becoming the person we want to be. So that would be the criteria, not by the outcome, but by the value, by what is important to you. Yeah.
0: So, you know, as you were saying that, one of the, one of the things I couldn't help but think about uh, was we had this uh, journalist named Will Store here who wrote a book called uh, Selfie. You know, and he, one of the things he said is that, you know, we have created this culture in which we're, you know, taught to believe that if we are not, you know, Oprah, Steve Jobs or Beyonce, like our lives are failures. Um, and he said, and this is an incredibly toxic thing that comes about. And it made me think back to the beginning of our conversation where you talked about this idea of us and I, right? So what I wonder is, you know, obviously it, this is something I I've spent a lot of time thinking about, particularly in the context of the situation we're in now is that, you know, self-interest obviously drives achievement. Like if we didn't have self-interest, none of us, we, we would just sit on our asses. But the thing is like, we've seen also, I think the consequences of what happens when you, um, basically, move self-interest to the point of diminishing returns so i guess the question that comes from that is how do you have this combination or how do you have the coexistence of fulfillment and ambition
1: It's a beautiful question i'm very very personal right sometimes i have wondered that about myself as well right um three, I, I think i have a three-part response um and let me see if i can elaborate this right um It is true that many times when we see people having these outstanding lives or outstanding product or outstanding service, our mind is going to compare ourselves. Oh my gosh, they do it better than me. They are better writers. They're better this, right? Uh, It's a natural thing that the brain is going to do because the cavemen have to do that, right? To survive. So it's an evolutionary process to compare ourselves, but we don't have to act on that, right? Um, So I think... When we are clear about why we do and why it matters to us, we know that it's not about being a like Steve Jobs or being like an opera, right? We know because it's something that we care about and you just want to leave your own legacy and you are okay with that, mm. right? But I think that that, that takes time, it takes a lot of, I think, checking again why I'm doing this. There is nothing wrong with our mind coming up with comparison thoughts and jealousy thoughts. I'm the first one, oh my gosh, this author, he writes much better, right? It's human. It's human. But I can choose how to relate to that. And if I check again why it's important, what's my value in this project, I will be okay because I am committed to the process, not to the outcome. I'm committed to what is in between. So that will be the first part. Um, The second part in terms of how we can handle with fulfillment and ambition, that's a, I think, maybe more complex question. I, I... Sometimes have asked myself, am I being too ambitious about the things I want to do? And today, my response may change in five years or in 10 mm-hmm. years. We'll see what happens. I don't, think, um, I don't think there is... I don't think that being ambitious or having ambitious behaviors uh, by themselves is a problem. It's about when... Um, I think it's about when we are pursuing something that maybe could harm others oh. uh, or it's not um, considering other people's well-being, right? Um, I think there are ways in which can still be ambitious and we can learn to cooperate with others. It doesn't have to be something that is just all about us, right? Uh, now, again, this may change, you know, or may remain the same response in five, 10 years, but I think it's okay to want more it's a question: How you get to the, get that, and when are you willing to say to let it go? When, mm-hmm. when? You know, it's not about having more and larger things, right? It's about okay, this is what I want to pause, and I think it's going to be very different for each person, right? Yeah. Um, but by nature, sometimes yes, like I am the first person that I want more about certain things, right? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, overdo certain things maybe more in the past than now. That's not necessarily wrong, but it's when if I don't learn when to drop things and when to pause, that's when it becomes dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, yeah, so I, that, I don't know if I'm answering. Yeah,
0: probably. no, absolutely. I, it's This is a, a question that's been really on my mind a lot lately because I think more is sort of our, our default. In fact, uh, I just finished reading a book called The Molecule of More. Uh, by a guy named Daniel Lieberman, and this is apparently all about dopamine. he's like, we're just hardwired to be this way like he's like you're not gonna stop because that's just human nature. it's chemical almost, and you know the interesting thing is that one thing I think we've lost sight of is is what is your definition of enough? you know like there is no idea of enough, most people don't have that, but the thing that I have been sort of you know as i' have been kind of going through this in my head um and just you know from the experiences of the last year, like I think the whole time I lived in San Diego, I was like, oh. Reason I'm depressed here is because I I'm not in a relationship. But what I started to see um, in the last two years, and it was strange because I wrote it in my own book, you know, at the end. Sometimes I think we we, you know, write what we need to learn, but um was that it was kind of like, okay, there's no I think particularly in American culture, there's this sort of idea that we're gonna find that this one thing, when we finally get it, that's gonna be the thing that finally makes us feel whole and complete. And what I realized was that if you have a portfolio of things that add meaning to your life, like a diversity of them, if one of them is out of balance, then you're not going to be nearly as affected by another one. And I, I got this actually from Jenny Tates, who said, you know, she said, like if you're a person, if you're everything, which they can't be, you know, that's like betting it all on one risky stock. And I kind of said, okay, let's take that out of context of relationships and apply it to life at large. Like, you have a model that could finally pull us off of the the sort of hedonic treadmill.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that comes to my mind, and thank you for sharing that. Um. There is a book that I read years ago. I think it's called Company of One" by Paul Jarvis.
0: Yep. He was a guest here.
1: <laughs> oh, was he? Wow. Wow. It's a classic, right? But that book is really questioning, right? The idea that more is better. Now, I can tell you as an immigrant, right? I remember the first time when I went to Costco, I couldn't believe. I'm like, oh my God. what's <laughs> <laughs> a shock, right? And there's another time when, of course, I'm trying to hang a picture in the apartment. So I go to Home Depot. I just needed maybe five nails, and I asked a person, where can I get some nails? And they say, oh, go to five. Oh, my God. I was like, 100 packs of nails, golden heads, silver heads, this one. I was like shocked because the paradox of choice, right? Yeah. But also this idea that more is better, I think it really reinforces this pursuit that we need to have X to be happy. If I have this, the White House, and the dog, and this, it will be okay. But I think that it's not acknowledging in human experience that no matter where we are, there is going to be different, private, and comfortable experiences. My mind still may tell me sometimes that I'm a failure. My mind still may tell me that I'm not good enough, right? Um, so I think it's more about checking again how you relate to thinking. Um, and really avoiding getting trapped is that when I have this, I won't feel that. It doesn't work too much like that, right? Um, So I think, it's, it's, but it's a very thin line because you're right. That's the message that we receive across the board, right? Um, The other thing you mentioned, behaviorally speaking, Skinner, one of the things that he always said, um, you know, he was a very progressive guy for his time. When we think about Skinner and behaviorists, most people think that it's, you know, uptight people, very rigid and with blogs, Right. But science have changed. Um, Skinner at his time was a very progressive guy. And he always talked about how richer lives are going to have multiple sources of reinforcement, which is exactly what you're saying, that yeah. in life, we do have different areas, our friendships, romantic relationships, career, um, personal development, that if we have um, stuff going on in each mm-hmm. one of those areas, that's a fulfilling life. Um, yeah, so I think, I think that's what comes to me when you ask that. Question. Well, I think
0: the, the reason that struck me so much was I, I remember just walking through, you know, the personal development section of Barnes and Noble and then, you know, uh, the other bookstore here in Boulder. And I, I looked, I was like, every one of these books is promising you a solution to some problem in your life. Like one, Hey, get the girl, make more money. You know, I literally, I, I remember <laughs> my friend said, he's like, here's the online course that'll sell like hotcakes. He was like, you know, get laid, get a six pack. And make a shitload of money and don't ha- without doing any of the work. He's like, you put that on a sales page. He's like, people will buy that in droves um, because that's sort of the promise, right? Like th- that's the promised land that we're all kind of seeking. Uh, and it's funny, you know. I think that one of the thoughts I had, like you know, you mentioned, if I fe- you know this happens, then I won't feel this anymore. I thought, oh, if I have a book deal, I won't feel insecure anymore, right? And then of course I find out that wait a minute, the people at my imprint are Ryan Holiday and Seth Godin. I'm like, okay, so much for my lack of insecurity.
1: <laughs> I think it's really. You know, one of the things that speaks to me is that, you're right, those books will sell a lot, but it's because that is speaking also to the degree of the struggle we're having internally, right? So the messages from the 90s about just being happy and being this, they're still not working. And they won't work because I think it's because we're humans and humans, wherever we go, our mind is going to have a life in its own, right? So I think it has to relate to thinking differently is super key. But... We're also, I think, fighting this other, or dealing with this other way about how we can teach people to sit with a struggle and not to run away. And culturally speaking, we don't have too many messages of that, right? Culturally speaking, we have been told that we shouldn't be fear, afraid, that it's a weakness, that you should just power through or get over it, right? So I think if we start sharing different messages about normalizing and validating the experience of fear, anxiety, as any other experience about just human, very different, right? We may have a larger shift.
0: Hmm, I love that. So, um, you know, we're getting close to the end of our time, but I, I want to ask you a question out of personal, just morbid curiosity. I think it also came, you know, from that Lori Gottlieb book you mentioned earlier, Therapists Are Human. So, one thing I wonder, and I, and I see this with a lot of friends who do coaching type work, uh, you know, is when you're having social interactions with people, whether it's somebody you're dating or, or whether it's, you know, a family member. Um, how do you turn off? Like I, you know, I always tell everyone in my family, it's like, look, my mom gets pissed off. She's like, everything I say to you has the potential to be turned into a blog post. I was like, that's the occupational hazard of, you know, being a writer is that everybody in your family is at risk of being turned into material. Like I remember I was, you know, going to write this memoir about the craziness of the generations in my family. And one of my cousin's like, you should probably wait until everybody's dead. That way there will be no backlash. Uh, but, you know, as a, as a therapist, like, I, I wonder, like, you know, when you're having an interaction with somebody that you're in a relationship with, you know, who wants to connect with you on a level of, okay, don't fucking, you know, give me therapy, talk to me like a human. Like, how do you do that? How do you, do you have it? Do you find it difficult to turn that off?
3: Uh, okay.
1: Do you want the Latina version? Do you I
0: want do. I won't. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely.
1: <laughs> okay. So Here's the deal. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm laughing because that's such a hot question, right? I'm on that question. Uh, so if I have to be brutally honest, here's what I can tell you. I breathe and I live behavioral science. I don't know how to understand life, the world, and people's behaviors without thinking about behavioral principles, and I really mean it. That's the lens I use also to look my own behaviors, my own thinking, my own actions, right? So what is different is that in a romantic relationship, if I'm on a date, right? It's not up to me all the time to be delivering, you know, my 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 advice approach, right? Yeah. Uh, so I think that that may be different, right? But, but the lens that I use to look at the world, it's certainly behaviorist, right? Yeah. It's it's I cannot turn it off because that's just the way that I understand life and understand people, right? Um. But but I wouldn't. I think what I have learned with time if people ask me for some in relationships, people may ask me for a specific input, Mm -hmm. I may to say all types of things. Other times, I do ask for permission, right? Can I hear my thoughts here or not, right? Um, Because I think when you're a therapist, people may think that you're all the time therapizing them, but you're not. I am behaviorist. I'm genuinely a curious person. I will ask questions because I really want to make sense. I get it, right? And that's just Patricia. That's Patricia, yeah, living behavior is right, but I know that sometimes my cl- my friends have Patricia just drop. I'm like, what did I do? I was just trying to. Break. <laughs> That's not my fault, right?
3: Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, you,
0: you reminded me because I, I remember I dated this girl for about a month and a half, and she actually happened to be a, a therapist. Mm-hmm. And at, at certain points, I was like, Oh my God, I'm like, Are you analyzing all of my behavior? And I remember when things ended, and you know, like, I went where friends like, she ended things with you because of your interaction with her dog. I was like, Apparently, I wasn't affectionate enough with a dog. No, oh. my, my, my granted, my, my, I remember asking the economist that was here, Allison Schrager, I was like, So I have this, you know, theory now that, you know, I, I shouldn't date with women with small dogs, and, and <laughs> my friends all think that my sample size isn't big enough. She was like, how many do you have? I was like, three. She was like, that's big enough. (laughs) You know, but all joking aside, uh, I mean, I've probably pissed off every listener who has a small dog now. But, uh, you know, that's the thing. I think that, you know, that's why I asked the question, because I was like, you know, wondering, like, how do you how do you turn that off? And I I know what you mean. Like, I I think in my mind, like every what every one of my friends like, how do you remember this? And, and you know, suddenly it goes into a blog post. Like, I had that conversation with you two months ago, you know, and I think it's hard to turn that off.
1: I think, you know, the one thing is that I know for me, the reason why I love behavioral science is because not only is a very multicultural oriented approach, but it's very intimate, right? Because they're not, you know, it's not about my assumptions or my hypothesis. It's about actually really learning from you and trying to put myself in your shoes to feel what you feel and think what you think. And from that place, I can be more effective, right? My clients laugh at me because, you know, you can have very abstract words. Like if people will say, well, I want to have more freedom. What does it mean? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to me? Maybe different, right? I will only learn by asking and by putting myself in their shoes and, you know, just seeing the world how they are seeing a little bit, right? So to me, that's very sensitive. That's very unique. That's respecting a person's experience. And that's very appealing from any other approach of doing therapy. Um, if I have you know hypothesis that of course I will bring that to the table, it's very transparent. But in reality I know that this is the way that I've approached my life. I have curiosities, I may ask one hundred questions, right? Until I get it. Um so I don't th- I don't think I can turn that off. That's yeah. for good or for bad. <laughs> <laughs> <Wow>. so-
0: <laughs> Well, this has been incredible. So uh, I've just so enjoyed talking to you. So I have one final question for you, which I know you've heard me ask. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: I think it's pursuing what they care about. I think it's pursuing what they care about and taking with them all the noise that comes under their skin when they are doing that. I think that's that's an amazing way of living life.
0: Hmm, Amazing. Well, I can't thank you enough for uh, taking the time to join us and uh, sharing your story and your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. This has been just phenomenal. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and uh, everything that you're up to?
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. You are such a great interviewer and a fun person to talk to. And I absolutely love your podcast. Super cool.
3: Thank you very much.
1: And I have this website. It's called thisisdrz.com. And in one month, I'm hoping to be launching a podcast called Playing It Safe. And I'm going to be talking a lot about behavioral skills to get unstuck from worries, fears, anxieties, and obsessions. Those will be the two ways to find me.
0: Very cool. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming. Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods